Good morning. This is Trace Beaulieu, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling, and we'll see you in the future. Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for September 26, 2023. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenflug. And I'm Pam Bedore. Hey, it's September 26th. Pam is here to discuss literature. We're going to be literate and think about things from a different perspective today, Chip. It's going to be a lot of fun, Steve. we got to keep our, uh, you know, our P's and Q's going. Okay, yeah, and don't moon anybody. No mooning. Sea of Tranquility. I did not see that coming, but wow. Wow, <laughs> Steve. Nice to be back, guys. Wow. Film at 11. Just to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Chip, you saw a movie this week called Dumb Money, the story of the GameStop stocks. That's right. It's based on the uh, Ben Mesrick book, The Antisocial Network. The GameStop short squeeze and the ragtag group of amateur traders that brought Wall Street to its knees. This happened a few years ago where GameStop just kept going up and up and up because basically a, a group of people just kept buying it based on um, this one gentleman, his desire and his thought that it would, it was a good company. Many people did not feel that was a good company, but where it really got fun. And so, that means you don't buy that stock. But for hedge fund people, what they're doing is they're betting against you. So this is where the stock market would be where you could buy ownership of something and, and, and go up and down with a company. Hedging is actually truly a zero-sum game where one wins and one loses. And uh, there was a bunch of hedge funds that really got um, challenged, got beaten up really good, lost Billions, billions of dollars. You said that they thought that this was a good company and investing in it was a good idea. Is that the story of dumb money or is it just the fight against that hedge fund? Well, it all started with a person who was using Reddit, which is a social network, to talk about stocks. And it was a room in Reddit where if you wanted to make an argument of whether you should buy a stock or not, where this one guy put together his argument. He goes, it's a good company. This is my spreadsheet showing why it's a good company. I want to say it started out at three or four dollars a share. And, you know, and then it goes up to 10, then it goes up to 20, then it went up to $350 a share. That guy was worth, I think it was $45 million at the time or at the peak. This is also the story of Robin Hood which was a trading platform like Schwab, like, like TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, where you could go and you could buy and sell stocks that was also being funded by that hedge fund or one of the hedge fund companies. And there's arguments that they did some dirty dealings to um, prevent the, the, the buying or, or selling of, of that stock during that time. This is an interesting story. Certainly one of the, the, book, the movies I was looking forward to this year because this is a very interesting story. And if you're not familiar with it, I would suggest finding an article and reading about it. Um, 
I immediately thought about it with uh, Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis wrote Moneyball, if you saw Moneyball a long time ago, with Brad Pitt, and also wrote uh, The Big Short, which was about the housing market challenges. And the movie was excellent. Both of those movies are excellent. And sadly, this this is a not a, a particularly strong movie. It's not bad, bad. It's just not particularly strong. I said 45 out of 100. Paul Dano plays our lead character. He's our whiz kid that has somehow determined that the game stock is the stock to buy and convinced a bunch of amateurs to buy this stock. No, no problem with any of that part. The rest of the cast is just awful. I, I, I can't believe that this cast was put together to be able to do it. And I just, I'm, I'm dumbfounded how awful it was. So hmm. I, I sat there, and I'm going to say it in a terrible way, because it, it was terrible. I sat there with a bunch of people, I think, who work in the industry. It was a pretty empty auditorium where I watched. I watched it at Alamo Draft House. And the number of people talking to the screen was just unbelievable. And then the cackling during this thing was equally as just um, not, um, it was crass. It was just, anyway. The the story on the high level is um, a group of people who should know better thought a bunch of amateurs were... um, uh, making silly bets and and put a large bet against them. The people who made that silly bet won. That doesn't mean that GameStop was a, a good holding. It just means that the power of numbers, where you can come in and you can make an impact. On the underbelly of it, the, the movie tries to basically undermine what Wall Street can do. So I know when you're dealing with capitalism, there can be some really unsavory parts. It can... Um, it can be ugly at times. Uh, it, it's crass. It's it's, um, but it's also um, and, and by the way, it also can be weaponized against people. But ultimately, what it does is the little guy can come in and change the industry. I mean, Sam Walton started out with a single store, and now there's WalMarts across the nation. So ideas can spread, and people can make money. And when companies are arrogant, like Sears, I mean. They may be out of business or their legacy companies could be around, but their initial part goes away. That is, that type of creative destruction is very good for society. This movie should be better. It just isn't. Hmm. I followed the story with a lot of interest and it seemed to me like the GameStop story was, was really largely about the power of social media too, which we think about a lot in education, but I'm not sure how much we think about in the world of finance. You would know that and I wouldn't, Chip. But this was a place where like social media allowed a bunch, as you said, of amateurs to uh, to make a ton of money over a stock that wasn't necessarily a valuable company. And, and they didn't necessarily make a lot of money. Many of them held to the end. So that was one of the, the parts of the movie. And, and the social media part, is absolutely true uh, on this. And in fact, the result of that is there are hedge funds now combing the web looking for this type of... You know, it, it, it doesn't even matter if it's true or not. 
Exactly. That's the point of social media, right? (laughs) That if there is a movement to it, what they'll do. But it's, it's a cautionary tale, too. So let me make sure I'm clear. When you're doing shorts and things of that nature, you're betting against something. That truly is gambling. It's not investing. Mm-hmm. It is gambling. And they have a, a lot of knowledge. They typically can uh, win some of them. And when they win, they win big. But that's very different than investing, where you buy something because you think it has value and you hold it for the period of time. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, it, it, regardless of of what it comes down to, this is about that movie. And this movie is a fascinating story that should have been done better. I got a chance to uh, dial back in the time machine this week, and I was watching a documentary called Reinventing Elvis, the 68 Comeback. This is a documentary about Elvis. I am not a fan of Elvis. I just want to put that out there. I am not a fan of Elvis, but I admire the persona that was created around this guy, the mythos, the legend of this musician who's coming from the poor roots of memphis and pulling himself up by his bootstraps and becoming this amazing character in our history this story is all about that moment where in 1968 elvis was pretty much done with music his movie career was really fizzling and he was out of the music scene and in 1968 somebody decided that we really needed to get him back into our culture and that somebody was colonel tom parker the story of this documentary is how much of a villain colonel tom parker was very much like he was portrayed in the baz lerman film about elvis and how much this other guy Steve Binder took Elvis and gave him the opportunity to be himself, to demonstrate his musicality and his humanity in this 1968 comeback special. When you say you don't like Elvis, what's not to like? Well, I... It's not not your generation. That's true. I'm just not a fan of the the music that he produced i i'm a fan of his persona i'm a fan of graceland when i went to graceland i was like yeah i don't know anything about elvis but walking in there and getting the story of this guy whether or not it's true the legend of the story of elvis is something that i'm a huge fan of are you recommending this documentary it's it's a tough question whether or not a documentary about uh, very much a baby boomer moment of the 1950s and 1960s is something that our audience would enjoy. But there's something to the history of the creation of rock and roll that is embedded in the story of Elvis. That The change in our society from the 1950s to the 1960s and beyond, and how Elvis was so central to that. The Beatles are also very much a part of this conversation they were the ones that took the spotlight away from elvis in the story of this documentary and how their vision of society and rock and roll and the music industry changed who elvis is i don't know i I, i'm not sure that everybody would love this documentary but when you were watching it was there any moment in the documentary that made you realize oh that's like an insight into 
contemporary pop culture or or music culture the yes the formation the very purposeful formation of this music act is something that we've seen this is the the prototype for so many boy bands and all of those characters uh hannah montana oh my goodness i think of miley cyrus poor miley cyrus who became this character in her own story elvis was the prototype for that in a lot of ways so then it sounds like it is worth a watch to me. I, I think you would enjoy this one, Pam. I think, Chip, you might have uh, some fun and smiles thinking about who Elvis was and who he was personally versus publicly. Uh, I enjoyed this much more than the Baz Luhrmann film. I'll, I'll tell you that much. The Baz Luhrmann film is just a Baz Luhrmann film with its chaotic cuts and all of the storytelling that goes on. And I'm sorry, Tom Hanks should not be the villain in any movie ever. (laughs) I can buy that. (laughs) He's not the right choice for villainy. Uh, The villainy that comes through the, the documentary where we see the, the questions about who Colonel Tom Parker was before he became, uh, by the way, he's not a Colonel. His name's not Tom and his name's not Parker. So there's some, yeah, there's some mystery behind that personification. So I, I had fun watching this. I think a lot of people would. Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book at our book of the week. The reason why Pam is here is it's the end of the month and our book club is full force this month with the sea of tranquility this was published in 2022 by emily st john mandel pam this is your book that you brought to us this month yes and this is one of my favorite books of last year let me ask you if you had read anything by emily st john mandel before didn't we read station 11 we certainly did we we read station 11 in the middle of a pandemic if you recall uh That's right. I'm so sorry. I teach Station Eleven all the time, and I've done it at many book clubs. So we did it. We did mm-hmm. Station Eleven together. Yes, we did. That's and awesome. and it is not one of my favorite books. I I tried to read it before we met, and then you said, "Oh, you need to read Station Eleven. I said, "Okay, Pam, I trust you, and I'm going to read it." And I read it, and I liked it. I yeah. didn't love it. I I kind of get the same feeling from this writing. Interesting. And and you guys have not read The Glass Hotel. And we have not. We no. Have not. Steve, Steve, Steve and I are not that learned, Pam. <laughs> we only read what you tell us to read, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is such a lie. <laughs> so here's the thing. I feel like I really, really loved Station Eleven, and I've taught it many times. Glass Hotel, when Glass, so Station Eleven came out in 2014, Glass Hotel 2020, and Sea of Tranquility 2022. I really, really enjoyed those other two novels, but Glass Hotel strikes me as far less like discussable. It hmm. felt like a sort of a middle book in a way that I personally loved, whereas Sea of Tranquility felt like it brought up a lot of really interesting topics and themes um, that you would want to talk about with other people. 
So Station Eleven is about a pandemic and about a post-pandemic world where a group of artists, uh, performers are traveling across the country providing art to those people that are, are left. What's the story of The Glass Hotel? So The Glass Hotel is actually about a Ponzi scheme. And Miranda from Station Eleven, the actual drawer of the Station Eleven comic books, has become, you know, a financier and so she's in in this book um there are so in the three books there are two the same characters are in two books but no one's in all three Hmm. and so it's a very funny combination that i think we're seeing more of in speculative fiction now the gap isn't that large between 2014 and 2020 but i don't think but it felt like station 11 was meant to be a one-off like it definitely wasn't planned as book one of a trilogy. Hmm. And this really isn't a trilogy anyway, but it reminds me of Margaret Atwood coming back and writing the Testaments 30 years after Handmaid's Tale or Stephen King coming back and writing Dr. Sleep almost 40 years after The Shining. And you feel like we see that sometimes. And I think what the pandemic did was shorten the gap. The world had changed so much between 2014 and 2020, which the three of us know perfectly well, as does everyone in the audience, that it was time to write in the same but different world. It Mm. was time to write another book that connects with Station Eleven, but not exactly. So The Glass Hotel is really, it's the story of a Ponzi scheme and all the different impacts of a Ponzi scheme. So in a way, I I write about these books in my Canada crime fiction book. It's a crime fiction novel without a murder. Very, very unusual, right? So The Glass Hotel talks about a crime that impacts tons and tons and tons of people, but does not have a murder at its center. So The Sea of Tranquility is the third in this pseudo series it's kind of a sequel and we see some of the characters from the glass hotel but you don't need to have read the glass hotel in order to read sea of tranquility It is a very good standalone story it is but one of the things that's really a delight if you've read the glass hotel and i'll just tell you this is not a spoiler chapter one of the glass hotel a character dies right chapter one but then you spend the whole novel getting to know that character and then in the final chapter you actually get their death narrated once again but all the details that were confusing in chapter one are now explained that's very shakespearean totally (laughs) and it's it's a great households both alike and dignity (laughs) exactly so for me reading sea of tranquility was fun on its own but also like seeing some of the characters from glass hotel in this interestingly undeveloped time travel novel um, what this is a time travel novel (laughs) steve Steve, she set this book up for you what well this (laughs) this is time travel that steve might not love (laughs) I, I, i do i do love it i do love it because it's time travel because it's well written time travel i really think that emily st john mendel is a literary author who's creating genre fiction for me and you to discuss and and i think her writing is is 
is superb. Her writing is wonderful. She's writing about feelings and relationships in such a beautiful way. Oh, and there's time travel too. So, right. <laughs> so maybe that's the part where you think that I won't wouldn't like it because it seems it it seems thrown in sometimes. The time travel, and I'm sorry, but like it's true that the time travel plot is not very difficult to figure out. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's a very, no, it's... very simple plot. <laughs> Because that's not her focus, I think. I think her focus exactly. is 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 literary and writing about feelings and relationships. I think ennui is a theme of this story. <laughs> so what what were you thinking in terms of ennui? Well, she actually uses the term. She says that this is terminal ennui. That is in part four, my favorite part of this book, Bad Chickens. <laughs> Go. Bad, chickens. bad chickens, bad chickens <laughs> is my favorite thing that is created from this story the idea of bad chickens is people always talk about the chickens coming home to roost and the author says to us in the writing why are they always bad chickens that are coming home to roost what if they're wonderful chickens what if we've been waiting for the chickens to come home to roost they're chickens <laughs> they're dinosaurs Steve. i love it that is my and favorite why did they part. cross the road exactly Listen, why why don't we ask so many questions about them? Why are they being questions? But but I think that I love that you point to the bad chickens part because it is such a delight, right? She delights in language and in pulling apart as a literary thing, mm -hmm. pulling apart the tropes that we don't even stop, the metaphors that we rely on without even thinking about them. And then she delights in pulling those apart and asking, like, what does that even mean? Right? Mm -hmm. But she's also right. Like, one of the big questions of this novel, which is why I love it so much, is why are people attracted to pandemic and apocalyptic literature? Really? That's a question <laughs> you wonder about? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because Th that's... There, that's a great question to ask. Because it's almost like uh, people want a self-fulfillment, like that somehow they have some special knowledge that others don't have. Wait, there's like, there's a self-fulfilling prophecy in this one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> but if we just start with that question, as I often do in my Utopia Dystopian Apocalypse class, if we start with that question, are we attracted to end-of-the-world fiction? All the students say yes, right? And the three of us say yes. And then if we ask why, what do you guys think for real? Why Why is it fun to read about the end of the world? It should be super depressing. I, I think for, for some people, it brings meaning to what their, what their life is. I mean, most people's, I mean, with all respect to us, most of us are forgettable within two generations. And... This idea that you're there for the end, then you become important to that that story. You know, it also could be because it's, it's trained to us. If you go to, I mean, we're in North America. If you go to a church, it's it's all about the end of times are coming, and uh, you've got to prepare. Wow, is that what church? Steve, you don't have fire wow. and brimstone in uh, the Catholic wow. Church. No, we have kneeling and uh, standing up and do what you're told. <laughs> Or, or or you go to hell and get in turn uh yeah for uh eternity you're tormented i mean why not but i think that that notion of storytelling right is right at the center 
of basically our lives. Um, you know, there's there's that Jonathan Gottschall book, uh, The Storytelling Animal. That's what humans are. We're we're an animal that tells stories. And that desire, I love how you framed that, Chip, that desire to be there at the end of the story. It's one of the things that I think is is tough when you think about dying is like, but then I'll never find out, <laughs> right? <laughs> will we solve the climate crisis? Will we, you know, will what will our space travels end up being? Will we ever be able to time travel? Mm-hmm. Like, what if we don't figure that stuff out before we die? Like, that's tough to think about. And I think that heads into the main character syndrome, which is which is a thing that I struggle with, is, is we are the protagonists of our own story and having an ending. We know that there will be an ending to our story. And I think that reading literature like this, where the world will end without us, we are the ones that are, are important. I think that's uh, very tantalizing storytelling. Absolutely. And of course, you know, I always love meta fiction. So fiction about fiction, as you guys very well know. And so this idea of Olive Llewellyn being a writer of a pandemic novel during a pandemic in the- and going on a book tour and, <laughs> and, and being very tired through, through the entire book tour. And and how much of the book tour is virtual because this was written during 2020 when we were all doing all sorts of our jobs through Zoom. Isn't there the the part where she gets into the uh, cab? Anyway, the guy starts telling it about his writing. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're a writer. Let me tell you about what I'm writing. Well, and, and there's also, so, so when we think about like, what are we attracted to in the end of the pandemic? That's what all of Llewellyn, all of Llewellyn is constantly doing lectures about the interest in apocalyptic fiction. And she has all these different reasons that we've just talked about. Like it's a way to manage our anxieties about today, et cetera. But then in the end, she thinks about what if we're just attracted to the apocalypse? We want to be heroes. We want to know the story, all of these things. What if we also just want less technology? Mm. Right? It's so introspective. This is so meta. Totally. You can hear the author at her computer at home, stuck in the apocalypse, writing about apocalypse and what it means for her at this moment. I was going to say, everyone wants to go back to starving. (laughs) 150 years ago, food uncertainty was for everyone. But, you know. Now it's for just a smaller part of the population. I like that you say that, Chip, because I think the novel doesn't disregard that. And certainly Station Eleven is all about that, Mm -hmm. that after the apocalypse, what are you left with? You are left with food and housing insecurity on a massive scale. And then are there other things that, that you might be able to spend more time with? It's funny because I feel like Station Eleven is fairly realistic that life after the apocalypse would be extremely, extremely hard. And it's not something that you would want that like it's not something that we would want to experience, but it's something interesting to read about. Right. And there are connections that get forged in really different ways. And maybe that's the point is that 
by reading something, you can live a thousand lives, exactly. right? Exactly. Or more. <laughs> and you don't have to experience it. Because you know, all of a sudden, when you realize you don't have air conditioning and you're all sweaty and you don't have a shower every day or whatever those things are, you can't go to the gym because you're too busy, like building like whatever fort or whatever you need for the, the your house. Mm-hmm. We forget about all those, when I call them luxuries, all the things that make civilized life wonderful. I mean, clean water is amazing. <laughs> and what we're talking about now is like, oh, what if we can make it cleaner? Well, my goodness, in North America, most of us have clean water. So, so yeah, that's that is why we love these stories. Is is thinking about where we're at and how we can make the world better, and how bad it could get, and and getting to that middle ground where we live and being pleased and okay with who we are. Yeah, and I think that. Emily St. John Mandel ends up putting this author figure inside of the novel who obviously stands for her, but who also stands for other authors too. And I think this very much is a book about the power of story, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the moments that I personally really, really love is about the tattoo. So I don't know if you folks paused on this one, but in Station Eleven, one of the main characters has a tattoo on her forearm and it says, because survival is insufficient. And that's the tagline of station 11. And then in, um, in the sea of tranquility, Marion bad, the novel that all of Llewellyn has written has the line. We should have seen it coming. Now Mm. I love that line because Mm. it's a very familiar line that we talk about a lot today with regards to the climate crisis, but which people brought up with regard to the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme um, that that broke in December of 2012, the same date as the Ponzi scheme in the Glass Hotel. And so Hmm. there comes a moment in Sea of Tranquility when Olive is at a book tour and she, once again, not for the first time, someone says, oh, hey, I want to show you my tattoo. And here's the quote from the book that I love so much. You write a book with a fictional tattoo, and then the tattoo becomes real in the world. And after that, almost anything seems possible. She'd seen five of those tattoos, but that didn't make it less extraordinary. Seeing the way fiction can bleed into the world and leave a mark on someone's skin. And when I read that, I just got this total chill because when I taught Station Eleven, During the pandemic, I was on a Zoom call with students, and one of my students held up his forearm to the camera and said, hey, I just got this tattoo like this week, and it's because survival is insufficient. Mm. And as a teacher, that's only the third time in my career that someone's had a tattoo of something that I, of a piece of literature that I taught them. And this was the first time the tattoo was in the book, right? So I've had a couple other students in the past tattoo text from a novel that we did in our class and come back and show it to me. But it wasn't a tattoo in the novel. It was text from the novel, right? So so there's the the level of meta here is really amazing. And that idea, like, how do you read that? Books that you read can become important enough to people 
that they would actually alter their body to assimilate something from the novel. And it brings up the author's conversation about the simulation theory. If we are living in a simulation, if this is all fiction, those are the sorts of things that would happen. People would get indelible <laughs> conversations from the literature on the literature in the story in the simulation. See, I love that. Well, let me let me let me bring out the hookah at this point. I knew I knew you were going to mention <laughs> that. Yes, what? this is a <laughs> philosophical piece of this time travel story. And and my question was, is this it's necessary? Just, it's just wild. This is out there. <laughs> is it necessary do we need to talk about the simulation theory in a time travel novel is that just tacked on i felt like it was it was a tacked on piece especially with the ending spoilers with the ending where the simulation theory is quashed by the time travel <laughs> so we read the book anomaly right Yes, we and did. That was, and yes. by the way, of course, the reason I even learned about this book was because of, of Sea of Tranquility, um, which whose last chapter is the anomaly and whose book reviews were tied together because they both deal with simulation theory, although in very, very, very different ways. Right. But I want to I want to say that I absolutely love your insight, Steve that the tattooing, the bleeding of fiction onto people's bodies, I had not thought of it as part of the simulation theory conversation, but I love that. I think it's mm. right that that's part of the simulation theory conversation. So so here's a question. I was just gonna I was gonna add to that this idea that she's given speeches about her book. And she's at the same time, she's given them so many times. She's, she's having questions in her mind elsewhere. Like, I'm sleepwalking through my presentations because. Uh -huh. That would never not, happen to teachers. I've Not <laughs> to mention all of the other simulations that she's seeing in her day. All of the fantasy simulation of the story of the of the princess in the story is uh -huh, very meta storytelling so in this literary novel because that's what it is right it's not mm -hmm. this is not genre fiction like we usually read this is a literary novel that uses tropes from genre fiction correct she ends up using a lot of tropes, right? <laughs> so, so she's got a book. Let's line them up. <laughs> you know, right? So she's got a book about the apocalypse, which she's already written. So she's got a post-apocalyptic piece. She's got a time travel piece. She's got a simulation hypothesis piece. And she also has a crime fiction piece. Now, <laughs> I mean, so, and the book is like, 200 short pages. It's like a six hour listen, right? It's not a long book. And she mentions that on the, on the <laughs> fake book tour, the, the fake person is asking the fake author. So what's, what's the story going to be? Oh, it's, it's a short, is it a novel? Well, it's kind of a novel. Like a novella. <laughs> right. So, so why in 2020 when you're writing a book during a pandemic about a pandemic and the future of a pandemic and the fact that we're always going to have different pandemics every couple hundred years or every hundred years like why would you throw so many things at it and I guess I feel like she's trying to capture the speed of our moment right? mm -hmm. but it's very interesting Steve I think 
you were wondering, is this a book that we're only going to read during this like short pandemic moment? Like, is this one of those novels that was written during the pandemic that's for readers of the pandemic and a couple of years after? Will we be teaching this book 50 years from now? That's a great, great question. And beyond that, how many more of these books are we going to read? How many authors were writing in the last three years? How many very, very personal tales are we going to read about the feelings of that pandemic? And, and it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer, it was, it's, are we suggesting that potentially this is, was just a writing exercise that really meant for publication? That's a good question. And I guess I'm suggesting it's not. I love the question and you could absolutely argue that it is. And as usual, I'm probably going to steal stuff from this conversation. That might be one of the assignments I provide next time I teach this. <laughs> like, will, mm -hmm. will this have any enduring legacy? Why or why not? It's a really, really good question. And we'll, <laughs> we will have to time travel to find the answer to that question. However, forward we'll, we'll travel forward <laughs> always, slowly always fun to travel forward i've heard <laughs> nothing bad can happen <laughs> but but i guess i feel like in the novel she's actually trying to create the speed of our current day right where we are completely we're hammered by all different tropes and ideas constantly I mean, we've talked about this many times. We are living in a choose your apocalypse moment, right? Which will come first, the nuclear war or the climate disaster or the meteor strike or, 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 right? We have so many possible endings ahead of us. Close, close <laughs> in our very, very near future. But then, or will artificial intelligence take us over? Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we're living in a simulation. I mean, the math on that is kind of compelling from Nick Bostrom. Simulation hypothesis is, is a pretty powerful one. But I think what I really love about this book is that in, 20, in the year 2500, 2501, when we meet Gaspary St. Jacques, they're still having the same conversations, hmm. right? So... In the history that she looks at and she goes back to the colonization of North America, for crying out loud. Oh, really? And they show up in Canada, Pam? <laughs> we'll talk about Canada because I can't. There's, there's lots of Canada in this book. <laughs> and there are no. Right, she's Canadian. <laughs> there are no Canada geese in this book. However, there are many other elements of Canada. But she shows how fast we've gone between 1810 and 2020. And then she provides a narrative that things have slowed down. I mean, the conversation that Zoe and Gaspari have in 2501 about the simulation hypothesis, it's the same one we're having today, right? Mm. The conversations um, that Olive Llewellyn has with her fans on the last book tour on Earth in 22-something, the same conversations we're having today. Now, you could say that's bad writing, that she's not a science fiction writer and she didn't anticipate all the changes that are going to happen in 500 years. But I actually think it's brilliant writing because she's showing this is not like a predictive book at all, obviously, but she's saying like, what if we imagine a world in which we slow down a little bit, guys, what if we take our time with things? What if we go into cathedral Grove as Edwin does at the beginning of this novel, when he lands in on Victoria Island. 
what if we take a moment? It doesn't have to be a long book to take a moment. But what I, for me, this book puts you a little bit outside of time. And it's very, I have no idea if Emily St. John Mandel practices yoga, but I'll be shocked if she doesn't, (laughs) right? This is the kind of stepping outside of time and taking a moment for yourself to think about where you are, who you are, what the world is. Somehow we need like a, a beach with a fire and just sitting around going, yeah, man, just like, like slow down. Years, and like three <laughs> years of everything to be shut down and we could just take our time and think through stuff like the simulation theory. You know, man, what if like, what, what was I saying? <laughs> but the book captures that, right? The book sort of totally. puts you into that mindset for me, it's a total delight, but I can understand. I don't. <laughs> but the question remains: Will we be talking about this ten years from now? Will Will my students who don't remember the pandemic understand this on the same level? Aristotle and Plato are still being discussed. Yeah. So you know, there are universal, there are universal conversations. Sure. So Pam, are you ready for man? Your book tour? <laughs> <laughs> Pam, are you ready for your book tour with your Canadian fiction book? Is this is this the the future of Pam Bador? I definitely. It's so tiring. It's so tiring to eat at hotels and give all these speeches, and I'm just sleepwalking through praise from all these critics. Oh, I, oh. I definitely want to be traveling to the colonies on the book tour. <laughs> No, and there's space travel. When I was listing all the tropes, I didn't even mention the moon. And there's space travel. There's colonization on yeah. the moon. Right? There's all kinds of yeah. things. There's space colonies, all kinds of things. But she throw. I I really think she throws all of that in to show the speed at which our paradigms are shifting right now. But then mm. also suggesting like we. I think a lot of people in futurism sort of have that idea that we're we're on this like totally breakneck speed in technological advancement and there's no way to stop it. But I think she's on guys like we're human. Well, created this technology and step back. We can slow down. But humans also, you know, I'm going to bring that, that part where they, was it her sister? Some you went to the to the moon colony. You went to the edge. You get you know, the road there, and she liked to go where it was kind of dirty, where where you could kind of see where it was all built. And the other stayed in the grid of the streets that were put together, where the weather was super predictable. All those things, and you know, we're humans, and we desire this novelty of life too. Mm. And it's very difficult to. If everything is solved, then you know it gets kind of boring. The problem of utopia. Make up your own problems. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I talked over you. What did you say? It's the problem of utopia. The reason Mm -hmm. that the perfect place is no place, utopia, utopia, is that if everything is solved, we have no problems, we have no stories. There there's Mm. no good art in utopia. Mm, back to the ferryman <laughs> exactly back to the ferryman <laughs> where that story you needed to have the art you needed to have that dream in order to have that humanity to your situation hmm. these books were written we at the exact same time and 
they have the exact same themes in very, very different ways, but you also have a simulation. Importance of story is at the center of that story, much as it is at the center of this story. Hmm. Hmm. I think they, they feel very different, but I think they have some similar themes. Are we talking about Zygax? Maybe. I, I believe we are on a zeitgeist <laughs> here. And, and that's, again, the big question for me is, do we understand this because we were there and will future generations get the same feelings from this that, that she is very, very eloquently giving us here? Well, this I was teaching mouse. Thanks, you guys, for the great conversation about mouse which and brought to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... This week I was teaching Mouse, and then um, and Mouse was last week. Persepolis this week, and so we're talking about how memoirs and graphic memoirs specifically can imagine traumas that are from the past that we aren't going to have access to. And I got into such a great conversation with my students because someone asked, like, "Hey, have you guys ever talked to your parents about traumas that they experienced?" Because of course, in Mouse. Art Spiegelman's basically interviewing his dad. And my students were like, oh my God, yes. My parents have told me all about 9-11, this huge mm -hmm. trauma. And so it was very interesting because I asked them, like, what do you think will be the traumas that you end up telling your kids about? Mm. And it was very interesting. I thought they would say the pandemic. Not at all. They hmm. all said the same thing. Now we do live in Connecticut. They all said Sandy Hook. And there was this moment, it was so interesting because of course I'm teaching in university class, but students started saying whether they were in second, third or fourth grade when it happened. And they were like, oh, oh my gosh, you were only in second grade. What happened? How did, I was in fourth grade. So I had a little bit more, like it was such a weird and fascinating moment where I think as adults, we think the pandemic is such a game changer. It didn't even it didn't even register when we were having this discussion. Hmm. Well, you look at my my daughter as a senior in college right now. That's history. That that was history. They, my daughter was born that day. So I mean, or like right there. So it for them. They were baby babies. They, they that was not even something that was around. Not nine eleven. Okay. <laughs> so it, it would make a lot of sense that they would pick something that is more contemporary when they are. Like, I mean, think about where your memories start. Was it three years old, four years old? Where do your memories start? They were either not around or just being born. Yeah. And I would, again, of course, they're not going to, 9 is not going to register for 18 to 24 year olds, but sure. I thought the pandemic might, but they were going, yeah. right? That was my surprise. But, but I guess it's, it's, so these kinds of novels, I mean, I don't know, Steve, that this novel, The Sea of Tranquility, I don't even know how much it's getting taught right now. Um, I haven't even taught it yet. I think I will though. But will it be taught 10, 15, 20 years from now? I don't know. Well, think about how many books get lost in the time, too. What makes one book rise to, I don't know, become part of the great novel reading you know, versus all the other ones 
you know, why don't we talk about 1984 and Brave New World and not talk about the other, you know, <laughs> thousands that were written similar or differently? So before we jump to the end, can I ask an ethics question since this is <laughs> we often come to ethics questions? Yes, that, that'll bring this conversation to I a, know, a I know, I know. grinding halt. In In the 25th century, in the Time Institute, the worst crime... And Gaspari's sister tells him, Gaspari, you have to be super, super careful. I have to be able to trust you. The worst crime is when you time travel, if you save the life of a person who should have died. Mm -hmm. Now, that was such a delight to me, right? Do you, what do you guys think? Could you time travel back and talk to someone who you know is going to die and not warn them about their impending death? If only Bill Murray would create some kind of scenario <laughs> in a movie where life you know, repeated itself over millions and millions of years. <laughs> I think that Emily St. John Mandel is a Doctor Who fan. This is oh, certainly yeah. <laughs> a question that has come up in Doctor Who over and over and over again. 100%. No life is more or less important than any other life and everybody dies when you're a time traveler and you go back in time and you talk to people who are going to die it's everybody there is no i need to save this person everybody goes to, to the same end in fact in my favorite part part four bad chickens she mentions the rose loop and i would bet you a million dollars the rose loop is a reference to doctor who because there's no explanation of the rose loop why is it called the rose loop because there's a character in doctor who that is trapped and the doctor can't save her and that is i think the the central part of this question is going back in time changing history is it going to wreck everything going forward like it has in so many time travel novels or is it destiny and i think in this book we made it very clear <laughs> that that was what was supposed to happen because that's what always happened well and go back to the stephen king uh 1163 mm-hmm and their goal was yeah. to go back and save JFK, mm -hmm. think about any ph philosophical discussion at some point comes to like, if you go back in time, would you kill Hitler as a baby? You know, mm -hmm. those types of things. Right. Those are, you know, can you change history by making a decision? Stephen King obviously did answer that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I love that book. And not just because it was 112263. <laughs> back to Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> I love that book too. So, and so as we move towards the ending of this novel and we get the sort of connection of the time travel and the simulation hypothesis, we get this idea that whether or not we live in a simulation maybe doesn't even matter. Mm -hmm. And so Gaspari thinks if definitive proof emerges that we're living in a simulation, the correct response to that news will be so what? A life lived in a simulation is still a life. Mm -hmm. I agree with that completely. I Me think we too. Talked about that when we read the anomaly, if this is a simulation, if that's the metaphor that we're using, so what? Fine. Let's let's be the best character in this story that we can be. 
Did you have something to add, Chip? You, you looked like you wanted to add, which is why I didn't say anything. <laughs> oh, oh I, I, the only thing I was thinking it was the Matrix, where the guy was <laughs> eating the steak mm-hmm. and asking to go back into the assimilation because he saw what reality was like for their universe. Mm-hmm. And so it, it depends. It depends. You, you know, do you do you go into the wild like Brave, Brave New World? Or do you want to stay in, a, in an area of comfort and or whatever they describe it? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the other thing I'm thinking of is if they gave you everything you want. I, I read a short story at one time where it was a, a city where everyone was a spy. You didn't realize everyone was a spy, but you're making drop-offs and stuff like that. Because what they felt, they, um, that you really enjoyed being the spy, work, working the clandestine world that you are and the awareness was oh this is nothing's ever going anywhere i'm in a simulation where i'm doing the same thing but they gave me the things i like Hmm. and and what do you do when you become aware so anyway who knows who knows that's very philosophical chip i'm gonna get out the hookah Uh, are you well i've got the (laughs) i got the lava lamp going steve and i've got the uh, black lights and the posters going too Let's keep going. And I've got the novel going because I want to bring up this question of the simulation theory. I love that you brought up the stake from the Matrix because there's a moment where Gaspari thinks, how do you investigate reality? My hunger is a simulation, I told myself, but I wanted a cheeseburger. Cheeseburgers are a simulation. Beef is a simulation. Actually, that was literally true. Killing an animal for food would get you arrested both on Earth and in the colonies. And so it was like, <laughs> I, 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 I got that line. And I was like, Emily, okay, I get it. That's just commentary in your story. But don't you think it could be a reference to the stake in the Matrix? I didn't even think of that. But this. I guess. <laughs> but this. This notion that, you know, meat is the the food in the in the simulation is is simulation, except it really is because they're eating beyond burgers, not cheeseburgers. What a future that will be. <laughs> eating trash food. It's our it's our present. I love the Beyond Burger and don't say it's trash. Take it back. It's trash. Oh, <laughs> he also argued with me about salt last week. You guys, it's a good thing that this is all a simulation, and we're <laughs> totally, because this could get ugly if we were in person. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> the end. I'm, so, again, so I'm not even that sure I exist because we've never met. This is just a this is just a simulation. I know, but but Steve, in in March, I'm coming to Chicago. <gasps> You are going to meet me in person, whether you want to or not. I will appear. I'm just. Did you say we, we are we are going to meet Steve in, in Chicago? Okay, I got you. Maybe you come see my musical. We'll see how it all. We'll see if it happens or not. But <laughs> this is the intention. We okay. can share Beyond Burgers. This novel and this conversation, they all end. And of course, I want to read you the ending because that's what I do. And this is a Canadian book, so even more importantly, so. The ending is Gaspari. When I wasn't playing my violin in the airship terminal, I liked to walk my dog in the streets between the towers. In those streets, everyone moved faster than me. But what they didn't know was that I had already moved too fast, too far, and wished to travel no further. 
I've been thinking a great deal about time and motion lately, about being a still point in the ceaseless rush. The end. So unsatisfying in one way, right? You just have a person who's moving at a different speed than everyone else standing in the middle of a crowd. Mm -hmm. So relatable in another way. You Mm -hmm. always have that moment. I love going to New York City, which is really nearby, um, and had totally different speed than my own small community. And I always love that moment. I do that. I just stand and let people swarm around me. And that feeling of like, you can be part of a crowd and not part of a crowd at the same time. And then when you move that back to think of history, you can be part of a moment and not part of a moment through reading, through stories, through literature, through education, through talking with people of different generations about the past and the present and the future. And so it's a very meta moment um, that I feel like is the perfect ending to this really you know, <laughs> multiply layered, multiply leveled, multiply futured. Multiply meta, meta on top of meta with a simulation on the side. Exactly. Novel. Just peel that onion, maybe. And a hamburger sandwich and some French fried potatoes. With a Beyond Burger for me. <laughs> I don't love this. Some book. of us were born to suffer. <laughs> I don't love this book. I don't hate this book. This is a very good piece of literature that has all of those tripwires of the meta and the the tropes and uh, a very much Doctor Who. I this is this is a Doctor Who fan who's been watching Doctor Who for a long time, and I, I'm here for it. That's the Sea of Tranquility, published in 2022 by Emily St. John Mandel. with it brings us to our scroll with it there's a uh, big tech news big tech news week this week chip tech news <laughs> remember tech remember tech news remember when we talked about elon musk all the time elon musk is in the news this week chip is that surprising to you it isn't i think elon wants to stay in the news i think he does he floated his next big idea for x.com which used to be twitter and in the face of a 60 percent drop in ad revenue he thinks the service is valuable and he could charge a monthly fee to everybody to use former twitter so do you, why did he say that he would like to charge a fee because the he wants revenue to make this company viable his statement was to basically stop bots and that and he couldn't figure out a way to get the bots from not posting on the uh, site. And so one of the ways would be to charge a modest fee. Hmm. So I don't know. I mean, it, you know, is it worth a dollar a month to you? Is it worth $2 a month to you? We, we, most people don't pay a lot for, for social media because you know they're the product mm-hmm. I, I i don't know what's going to happen with this i i think that what we've learned particularly when he bought it and allowed um the uh people to investigate how social media and government has been intertwined and in suppressing information that the 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 narrative of having uh an open and free speech even though you get the ugly parts with it. Could be very important, or can't, it, it is important, at least what we try to say. But the challenge is, is going through something 
that is so full of just noise, mm-hmm. like, and trying to figure out what is reality through that, you know, that, that's the tough part. That's the tough part. So he's, my assumption is, is based on what I've read on it, was that he was looking to try to stop the bots from coming through. So in order to be able to post, you would basically have to have a uh, subscription. Gatekeeping to the truth and gatekeeping to open and honest dialogue. And and most of us are paying, I don't know, do you, do you pay a monthly fee for storage um, through Dropbox or iCloud or some other, you know, or Google? Um, you know, many of us are used to paying a monthly fee for or a modest fee for something. I don't know if, if that allows um, it to be cleaned up some, maybe that's the answer. I think a lot of us are kind of still on Twitter. I'm certainly in this boat and I think a lot of my friends are too, but haven't been posting for the past six or eight months. And so mm-hmm. this will just clean us out too, which is, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not going to. And, and, the, and there's the, the risk that you're running into because, you know, if you've got only, and when I say conspiracies, when, you know, NPR and the Washington Post and, and the Washington Times and or whatever they are, Examiner or whatever, the Wall Street Journal and everybody starts pulling out, those are the legitimate sources. Mm-hmm. And But what Twitter has always been good for is breaking news, where you're getting the information, you're not getting it filtered through a news service. Um, you're getting it from John, and John was there, and John has pictures of being there. So, you know, you're getting it from his point of view. What ends up happening if it's all, you know, like I said, it gets to be just all just noise yep. of conspiracies and stuff. It's hard to take reality from that. Yep. Everybody's perspective is important. And when everybody's important, then nobody's important. That's uh, that's the way that I look at it as well. Windows is rolling out an update today and includes Copilot AI baked into the software of Windows. AI is here. This seems familiar. Sounds like the story of Internet Explorer being integrated into Windows and the monopoly that Microsoft faced from that. Well, they're your friends. They're here to help. Welcome, welcome our new AI overlords baked into Windows. Do, do you even have a Windows computer in your house, Chip? I do not. I turned in my Windows computer yeah. about two months ago. That was the last Windows computer I owned. And I had it, um, it was probably three years since I actually turned it on. Hmm. So that was the last Windows computer I had. My assumption is the university system works off of Windows. Is that true, Pam? Uh, yeah, we're about half and half at my university. Okay. I just bought a new Chromebook. I'm all in on Google at this point. Interesting. I, I live in the Google ecosystem, so I don't have a Windows but, computer. I do have an Apple computer that that I'm using right now, but I'm all Google. Google's your friend, and Google's not your aver- uh, overlord either, Steve. <laughs> right, right. I, I bought into that part of the overlord system instead, for sure. They are celebrating their 25th anniversary this week. Happy birthday to Google, 25 years old this week. Can you even imagine what life was like before Google? My students who are 12 and 13 can't. They don't see a difference between the internet, the World Wide Web, and Google. Those are all one thing in their heads. Well, somebody yelled Yahoo. 
yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> and, and and one of the kids in the back was just going, bing, bing. He's a robot. If he could only ask Jeeves. <laughs> so the, those are the big tech stories for the week going toward our uh, dystopic uh, if overlords of AI coming for us with the time travel and all of the other tropes from Emily St. John Mandel. It would be interesting if we lived in a world that didn't have AI in one of the other simulations. There you go. Write that book. I will read the heck I, out of that book. I can't do that, Hal. <laughs> Man, thank you so much for bringing us another wonderful piece of literature that happened to have time travel in it this week. We look forward to uh, another great book next month. So do I, guys. Have a great day. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think we can. What do you think, Pam? I think we definitely can and should. There you go. <laughs> Positive Pam for the win. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on threads and on x.com and on Instagram and to Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm dystopian Chip Hassenflow. And I'm positive Pam Bedore. <laughs> See you in the future.